Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Daniel Geshwind. Uh, he's the Gordon and Virginia McDonald Distinguished Professor, uh, Senior Associate Dean and Associate Vice Chancellor of Precision Health. Uh, he's based out of UCLA. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, what's called exome sequencing. So, Dan, thanks for coming. Uh, thank you, Richard. It's my pleasure. You know, I think people understand DNA, but uh, what are what are exomes? What part of DNA is that? And what what do they do? Sure, the exome is the approximately let's call it two to three percent of the entire genome that actually codes for protein sequence. So from the exome, RNA is made, and from the RNA, the proteins are made, and so the exome is the part that directly codes for proteins. And the rest of the genome is involved in the regulation of those sequences, that is, turning them on and off, et cetera. So the exomes code for, what, the RNA that assembles proteins at the ribosome or, you know, more specifically? Yeah, yeah. So the exome is the part of the, you know, what happens, it's interesting because um, when the RNA is made, it's made as a, it includes, so Basically, every gene, let's call it a gene for a particular protein. Let's take hemoglobin, for example, which is in your red blood cells and carries oxygen. So the gene for that consists of parts that code for protein and parts that involve the, the regulation of the gene, its levels, turning it on and off. And so from DNA, RNA is made and then protein is made. And what happens is, In the first case, when RNA is copied from the DNA, it actually includes virtually the entire gene, including what are called the introns, which are the regions between exons. And the exons together make up the coding sequence. And then those regions are spliced out so that you get a message RNA that then gets attached to the ribosomes. And that's where protein is made from that. And it's the message RNA components for all genes. That's the exome. In in genomics, we use, you know, we often end things with ohm. And so a gene is a singular gene. A genome is your entire genome. In the same way, the ex each gene is made up of exons and introns, but the whole complement of exons making up the protein protein coding sequences of all genes is called the exome. So we're sequencing that ohm, that two to three percent of the genome that codes for proteins. Okay. So a gene is composed of an uh, exon and an intron. The intron part governs access to the exon part? Yeah, I mean, it's unclear what, you know, a lot of the genome has unknown function, but we we consider introns, which are, so like when a gene starts, it has an area called a promoter 
which is before the coding sequence. Then it has, let's say, an exon, then an intron, then an exon, then an intron, et cetera. Some genes have like 40 or 50 exons and introns. Others, there are a few genes with, with no introns. It's just one big exon. But most genes have introns and exons, you know, on average, you know, eight to 10 or so. And so the non-coding, which is means non-protein coding part of genes and the genome are thought to be regulatory. Only 5% of that regulatory sequence is well understood. The rest of it isn't that well understood yet. So it's a really interesting point that you make is that a lot of intronic sequence function is not well known. And that's actually one of the reasons why we don't spend a lot of time analyzing it and why we actually go for the exons or the exome, because we totally understand their function. We know that they're used to make protein and certain kinds of mutations will disrupt that process of making protein. And those are usually disease causing mutations. When, uh, when you have epigenetic marks like methylation and histone modification, does that affect both exons and introns or just exons? No, uh, it affects, uh, uh, epigenetic modification affects the entire, all of it. Um, it can affect exons and introns, but again, epigenetic modification usually leads to changes not in the protein coding sequence itself, but in the regulation of that gene, whether it's turned on or turned off in a particular cell or tissue, at what stage and at how much level. Have people been able to discern if you have a gene with very few introns and very few exons and it's epigenetically marked versus one that has, like you said, 40 or 50 exons and introns, um, can you tell if there's a difference in gene regulation? Are ones that have less features easier to regulate or harder to regulate, or is there more nuance to the regulation? That's what it's thought, you know, that those are more complicated, you know, more complicated regulation. And indeed, that's the case, you know, in general. Um, I would say there's a general trend towards that. When you get to any specific case, you have to be a little careful. But in general, that's exactly right. The more kind of introns, the more exon introns, the more complex a gene's regulation usually is. So when when someone says, oh, I, you know, their, their genes have been sequenced, how much of someone's genome has been sequenced? Like the most sequenced person on the planet, have they gotten everything? Or is there still missing pieces? No, there's still missing pieces. Although, you know, we probably have a, at this point, a, a good part of it, right? When the first human genomes were done, we might have been, the first complete human genome was probably about 60%, but it was enough to provide, you could imagine uh, the analogy might be a building. You know, you see the framing going up and having that framing tells you how big all the rooms are going to be, where they are, where the stairs are going to be, duck, you know, it gives you everything. And, and so you could say we had 60% finished, which is like having, you know, equivalent to having the framing. Um, but, you know, very detailed framing, maybe with some wiring and electricity and other stuff in there. And now we're we're beyond that. But there still are regions that aren't well captured. And that's because they contain a lot of repetitive sequence uh, for the most part. And that's and, and part of it is because and there are also some complex rearrangements that go on in our genomes. And it's because the technology, the dominant technology that's been used to sequence genomes uses short reads of DNA, let's call them 100 to 150 bases, 
and then assembles the genome from that. And if you have long repetitive stretches or stretches that are similar to other stretches, it makes it very hard to map those. And so the advent of a long read sequencing it, um, has now made it possible to fill that in. But that's not clinically used yet. So people use short read sequencing. Yes. And the vast majority of people who have had sequencing have had their exome sequenced because, frankly, that's the part of the genome that's most interpretable. So you, in some ways, get your most bang for your buck. I'll give you an so, example so, if that's all right. Or, or, or do you have a... Well, quick question, then, then the example, please. So, so today, you know, the most sequenced person or people on Earth, how much of their DNA has been sequenced? What percentage are we up to now? I mean, that's, that's hard to say. The most sequenced person on Earth. That's a tough one. Um, I would say it's somewhere in the 90s. Um, okay. Yeah. And I mean, so one, it's, one, it's pretty close. Yeah. One more question here. So what if I, um, if I had myself like sequenced to the max, you know, as, as high a resolution as we can get, 90 some odd percent, and I did it, you know, every month for a year, would you expect to see many differences in, or would you expect to see any differences? No, I would not expect to see differences. It, now, here's an interesting thing. That is, I would, I might see differences if I'm sequencing certain cells that change over time. For example, your T and B cells, which have areas that recombine as you're exposed to antigens and things. And so your immune system genes do, you know, the genomes in those cells change, but most of your somatic cells, that is most of the cells in your body don't change over time. There could be some mistakes made as your DNA mutates and then gets repaired. Yeah, I would think there'll be maybe a base rate of change. Oh, and then, you know, I mean, from what I understand, is, there's transposons and stuff that, that change the DNA. But. Yeah, um, but that's not going to really, that doesn't change your sequence from, you know, in general. It would it, so, so modest as to be um, really hard to assess where, where it would change is, you know, sometimes, you know, people get mutations that cause cancer, um, right? So in cancer cells, certainly you're going to have changes relative to your your kind of germline, you know, DNA that you're kind of born with. But in general, the kind of rate of somatic mutations, like if I take a tissue, let's say like brain or liver, it's very, very small. They are occurring, but I doubt I would even detect them in most whole tissue sequencing, unless one did a study that's very, very specifically focused on detecting those, which requires very deep sequencing and kind of specialized analysis. So in general, that's kind of below the threshold of detection because we're talking about detecting something that's happening in 1% or less of your genome. If, if now, I had, you know, like unlimited money and I said, Hey, when I die, I want you guys to deep sequence as deep as possible a hundred different cell types in my body. Do you think that would reveal anything useful or interesting? And yes, would that be like yes. unbelievably expensive and it hasn't been done? Yeah, it would be unbelievable. It would be very expensive. It hasn't been done, but people are beginning to work on this issue because we, we need to catalog and understand what is the extent of this so-called somatic mutation, things that you accumulate over time and could those possibly contribute to disease? There's quite a bit of controversy around that. And so the kind of sequencing that we're talking about doing clinically 
for patients right now has to do with taking blood for the most part, sometimes their tissue, but usually blood, and sequencing that tissue, not specific cell types. So we're getting a kind of composite view, which is a largely 99.99% accurate view of their sequence and genome. And we're identifying the areas that we can interpret. Now, it's true that in what I was going to add before is that when we sequence this 3 to 4% of the genome, the exome, in patients clinically, let's say at a place like UCLA, where patients with a wide variety of undiagnosed disorders, typically rare, are referred. It could be anything from a cardiac disease, an immunologic disorder, to autism or a brain disorder, or another type of neurodevelopmental or developmental disorder. We have a yield of almost uh, just somewhere around 25%. It's a pretty high yield. That is, in people who have not been sequenced, who have a disorder that's been undiagnosed, that have gone to a bunch of doctors, there's a yield of about 25%. If we add whole genome sequencing on top of that, we, let's say, roughly double or triple the cost, but we don't double or triple the yield. And, and that has to do with a lot of technical factors. And so that's why currently, clinically, most discovery starts with, and clinical diagnosis starts with exome sequencing as a first line. So, uh, you know, one more question here, and then I, I, we'll get to the benefits of exome sequencing. Um, if I, uh, again, an imaginary study where now I had, uh, I don't know, 20 different people who all agreed upon death that 100 different of their cell types each would be sequenced to the max, and then you looked amongst them, would you see much difference then? Or do we know are there are certain cell types that, you know, uh, are almost the exact same between people and some that tend to be very divergent? That's a great question. It's just not known at all. Um, that kind of study hasn't been done, but the sense would be that there's cells like brain cells and muscle cells that don't divide very much. I mean, there are some brain, some brain, some certain specific brain cells do, but vast majority of brain cells, neurons don't divide of the neurons in the brain. And so, Cells that proliferate, like most of the other cells in your body, your skin cells, your gut cells, liver cells, etc. It's interesting how those might change a little bit over time with mutations. You can imagine if you actually got a mutation that had some kind of proliferation advantage that made that cell stronger, more fit, whatever, it would overtake the others. And in some cases, that's what leads to malignancies cancer. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So yeah, now we'll go back to XM sequencing. So I see why it's like, I don't call it low hanging fruit, but like you said, it's the most well understood part of our DNA. It appears the function of it. So what, what kind of exome sequencing are you working on and what, what kind of outcomes are you looking for? Sure. I mean, th- you might ask, like, why would you sequence 4% of the genome when you can sequence, you know, 95% or 90%, right? And, 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 which is a great question. And up until now, the majority of the answer to that has been the two things. One that you brought up, it's low hanging fruit in that we can interpret it. It's easier to interpret. And two, cost. So when you look at cost benefit, it actually has a huge advantage. But 
as genome sequencing cost goes down, it will replace exome sequencing, no doubt, because when you sequence the genome, you get the exome plus you get other things. And we're beginning to be able to interpret those other things more and more. And as we get better and better at that, the value of genome sequencing clinically, its actual um, output will, will clinically relevant output will, will also increase. And so exactly where that is, where that inflection point is, is not clear, but roughly a genome costs about, I'm just going to roughly about 600 and something dollars now to produce using the common technology, an exome around $200. So it's about a third. The exome is 10 to 20 times faster to analyze at least. So it's kind of an easier process. And so once the cost of a genome gets to be in the hundred dollar range and the computer costs aren't, aren't crazy, I believe we're not going to be bothering with exomes anymore. And I think we're, we're rapidly moving towards that place, whether it's a hundred dollars or 150 or 200 or 75 is a kind of more of a economic question that will have to be answered. And, um, but so in some cases we, um, so for example, so we start with exome sequencing. It's, it's so inexpensive and it's actually been in clinical use for not quite a decade, but almost a decade, about eight or nine years at UCLA as a clinical test for patients who come in with an undiagnosed disease. Again, as I mentioned before, many of these patients have gone through a relatively arduous diagnostic odyssey. That is, they've spent years, often if it's a child, their family has gone to a half dozen different expert physicians around the country. They've had tens of thousands of dollars worth of tests without any yield. The exome sequencing, which involves sequencing the parents and the child to compare their genomes and see if the child has any new mutations, which is typically the lowest hanging fruit. What What is the highest level of sequencing that I could get right now that would be useful to me, that would tell me something that is understood and known? And what would well, that be? What would it tell me? So, yeah, so the question is, it really depends on what your situation is. If you're somebody who has a certain, a whole range of neurologic or cardiology or other, or, or, you know, family or family history of those things, it might be, it might be quite valuable. The issue is that we don't do that clinically in patients for whom we don't have a treatment. And so I'll get, I'll, I'll kind of loop back to that because I think your question kind of jumps ahead a few, a few, um, not light years, but a few, you know, hundred feet ahead of where, where I, where my head was at as we were talking about this, because the clinical exome sequencing as a clinical test is extraordinarily useful. So in people who have autism in a serious developmental delay, serious epilepsies, serious cardiac diseases from arrhythmias to cardiomyopathy, people with lipid disorders like high cholesterol, um, et cetera, these um, uh, rare immunologic disorders, the yields can be incredibly high, up to 50% um, in those what patients. It, what does that mean, the yield? That means that somebody has gone around to see, I'm just going to give you an example, like this diagnostic odyssey, a patient 
is like five years old. They've had a number of developmental delays and problems. They've seen six doctors. They've gotten MRIs, EEGs. They've been tested up the wazoo. Let's call it ten or twenty thousand dollars, you know, down the road, and 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 years of 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 searching. They come to a place like UCLA. They get a clinical exome test in our undiagnosed disease center, with, that's called the California Center for Rare Diseases, and for you know a couple thousand dollars because we sequence it, because it's a clinical test now where it has to be interpreted and we also sequence the parents. We end up making a definitive diagnosis in about 25 or 30 percent of cases. That's the highest yield clinical test we have in general. It, it's kind oh, of amazing. And so, and so the point is that's the kind of clinical and the other clinical implementation now, they don't sequence yet the whole exome, but a lot of the exome they sequence in several hundred genes in people who have cancer now. You probably see these foundation medicine advertisements or other things on TV. About 6% of people with cancer have a mutation that can currently be identified and lead to a change in treatment where you get a specific drug targeted at that mutation. And that number is going to grow and grow and grow till I predict more than half people with cancer will have targeted treatments. Probably, you know, eventually everybody. That's but, great. Um, you know, so, so clinically, those are the primary areas where this kind of sequencing a lot of the genome or the exome or a huge panel of genes is being done in people Do with have- familial cases of dementia, like Alzheimer's or frontotemporal dementia and other things. It also has a yield people with certain adult onset neurologic disorders as well. Um, do you think it's worth it for, you know, if someone has the money, how, like how much would it be for me to sequence myself to the max, you know, to get to that 95% or maybe higher level and, you know, would that be useful even not now, but you know, if I hold on to that data for, you know, obviously 10, 20 years, do you think it might be a good idea to do that now? And then as more, I guess, as the ability to analyze it improves it, I can then avail myself using what I have to, to see what that tells me. No, Richard, that's a, that's a wonderful question. I think that is a, a kind of choice that one can make, but let me spell out the pros and cons in that for you. So, and it really depends upon how great your curiosity is and how big your pocketbook is. So, <laughs> well, at um, least my imagination is as big as you want. So let's talk. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so the issue is that right now, let's say for cancer, we get about six, 7% of patients and, you know, five or 10 years, it's probably going to be something like 50%. It's hard to know exactly how fast things will go. It, and the same thing will occur in other spheres. You know, we'll be able to do a lot, use a lot of genetics to predict your potential risk for things. Not in the way that 23andMe does it, which is using common genetic variation and generally, in most cases, fairly weak. You know, and not, you know, and as they say, non-definitive, it's not a, it's not a medical test, right? It's, it's more, you know, for, uh, you know, for curiosity. Uh, my bald brother has a zero risk, according to 23andMe, of having male pattern baldness, for example, and a bunch of other things, <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, I mean, you get the idea, but so, but the idea is that once it gets cheap enough, these data will have extraordinary medical utility. Because 
as I think you alluded to, once we have genetic sequence from hundreds of thousands or millions of patients with a wide variety of common disorders, we'll have the power to understand which genetic variants have the largest effect in causing or increasing your susceptibility to that disorder. So the kind of larger the sample size gets, the more predictive power we get up to a point. But that point hasn't been even reached at all as in medical centers, really only hundreds of, on the order of hundreds of thousands of people have been sequenced. Like in, there's a UK biobank study. And really in some ways, um, this pharmaceutical company, Regeneron, has been leading in that way in that they've partnered with the UK Biobank and with other medical centers, starting with Geisinger and now most recently with us to collaborate to sequence a large number of patients. The value of that, along with the medical record, is that now you can ask, how does genetic variation increase risk for certain diseases? So you can discover new disorders, new relationships between mutations and disease that help you understand what we call disease pathophysiology or the or the cause of the disease and its mechanism so that we can design targeted therapeutics. And, um, you know, and we're really in a in a realm now where we can do that using genetic engineering, as you as everybody has seen from these rapid deployment of vaccines using a lot of the same technology that would be used, you know, to to, uh, you know, to approach disease. And so so the idea here is that we we need to, you know, in certain cases, the yield is is high. Right. And and um, my belief is that eventually and whether this is two or three years again or seven or eight years or 10 years, insurance companies or your healthcare systems, your hospitals will just get your genome sequence you know, when you're born or, you know, in every patient when it's cheap enough, because the value of having that information in terms of being able to predict who is at highest risk for certain cancers, who is at risk for heart disease, who is at risk for diabetes, and actually preventing or intervening to delay the onset or the severity of the condition is going to be massive. And I think that's really where we're going. And for for example, in this project with Regeneron that we're starting that I think sparked uh, you reaching out to me. In sequencing 150,000 patients, we expect that two to three percent of those patients are going to have mutations in about, let's call it about 70 genes that are known, that are medically known, that cause medically known syndromes or conditions, and for which there is a kind of treatment. And what I mean by that, the treatment doesn't always have to be curative. It could be, aha, we know this person is at really high risk for colon cancer. Starting at age 25, they're going to get colonoscopies every year so we can detect it early and take them out, right? Right, it makes sense. Until we, you know, until we have a better treatment. Same thing with breast cancer, BRCA1, 2. You know, people, but up to about 3% of patients are going to have those mutations. And it doesn't just have implications for them. It has implications for their first degree family members at all. As well, like their offspring and and you know uh, brothers, sisters, etc. So so the point is that by knowing that before people reach the age of risk, you can implement preventive procedures that will likely substantially reduce 
the impact of that mutation on that patient's life and allow them to kind of take control along with their health system of of that predisposition that they had but didn't know about. And so what about, um, what about epigenetic marks? Um, can you get an idea of all the marks that affect, you know, at least the exome of a person? And is that called something? And is that clinically useful yet? No, it's not clinically useful yet. But I also believe that will become clinically useful as well, especially because epigenetic, most, many epigenetic marks really reflect environment and they change with environment and exposures food, exercise, other things, right? And even drugs that you might take. And so they're kind of, once we understand them better, they could be surrogates for environmental exposures and kind of be used as a composite for understanding that risk. Um, Epigenetic markers may be very useful as biomarkers for predicting risk as well, because as you're noting, not everything is in the genes. And let me make a clear point. It, it could be that for the majority of patients that we sequence, more than 50%, let's just say at UCLA, we have 4 million patients and we sequence them all. I would say for probably 3 million of those, at least I, I would agree with this statement. It's unlikely that this sequencing is going to identify rare mutations that are driving disease in them. But for the 5% or 10% of patients that we actually do identify those in, the life savings, the years saved, the pain and suffering saved by the patient, as well as the, the, the savings and cost to the public health and health infrastructure is likely to more than warrant that level of, that level of screening. And that's why I kept saying as prices drop, eventually this will be implemented. Because it's not going to be predictive in the way that I've been describing in everybody, but about seven or eight percent of people likely have rare mutations that either cause rare forms of common diseases or rare disorders. That, that is, when I'm speaking about rare disorders, they're individually rare, but together they might comprise as much of, as 10 percent of our, of our patients. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Daniel, what's the best way for people to find out more about Regeneron's work and your work specifically? Where can they go? Yeah. Um, so this was a project that is um, driven by UCLA Health and our Institute for Precision Health. The notion, everything we've been talking about really derives from the notion that we can use big data and genomics to care for the individual as the individual that they are. And as you mentioned, their genome is part of that, their exome, and their epigenome. And the more detail that we get from the individual, the more data we have, the, the better we're going to be able to treat that specific individual and therefore the entire population. And so we have an Institute for Precision Health that's been driving our biobanking, this collaboration with Regeneron, a lot of the implementation of big data into into medicine, along with our computer science colleagues. And so if you go to the Institute for Precision Health website at UCLA, we have information on our various programs, which include um, the kind of um, e-health, the electronic health, 
connection of electronic devices to health record. It involves this population health project of sequencing 150,000 or more patients called the Atlas Project. We have the California Center for Rare Diseases, as well as projects that were beginning to spin up in, in cancer and other areas so that we're treating people as individuals and we're able to implement genomic medicine, which is really the future of medicine, using these omic technologies, not only to diagnose patients, but also in the end to treat them as well. And again, the COVID vaccines are great examples of novel omic technologies that five years ago might not have been possible. Very good. Well, Daniel, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a great call and I really appreciate it. Been a pleasure. Great questions. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.